0: Well if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter three. Gonna be looking at verses one through twelve this morning. You can find it on page nine hundred and eleven in the Pew Bibles. It may seem a little bit funny to you that we're gonna have sort of a Christmas message from the book of Acts. It kind of surprised me as well, but you know, things are unexpected come Christmas time, like the weather. No one really anticipated it being quite this warm. Sometimes you just have to roll with it, and that's what we're doing today. We're just Rolling through the book of Acts. But the real reason why we stayed here is that Peter makes this statement in this passage that really grabbed me and it wouldn't let me go. He says, I do not have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And as I thought about that, you know, I was like, that statement captures what I hope will be the overflow of our hearts this Christmas. It's so easy for us to get caught up in all of the traditions, all of the decorations, to get excited about this extended time that we have with family and friends and really good food. We we drive ourselves mad just trying to figure out and acquiring just the right gift for so-and-so, or giving those gifts, or, or for some of us, receiving those gifts, and we spend a whole lot of silver and gold to get them. This season is, is filled with joy, with wonder, and with hope, and with cheer. But if, it, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's, it's really easy to make it about all of those other things. And yet for some people, Christmas is a time that's filled with pain, sorrow, hopelessness, and want. What difference does the Son of God, being born of a virgin in a stable, make for my situation? And I think that this passage speaks to both. Speaks to those who find themselves in abundance and hope and joy and wonder. But it also speaks to those who are struggling to see what difference this makes for their current situation, feeling broken, poor in spirit, sorrowful, or simply distracted or distant. And so what I hope that we see this morning from Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 that that changes and informs our hearts this season is that the gift of Christ is the gift of new life. The gift of Christ is the gift of new life. And so let's turn our hearts now to the passage, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Though this is not a Christmas text, this is an act that portrays salvation in the coming Christ. In it, we see that gifts are are given. The compassion is extended, it is expressed, and that results in change, in healing, in hope, in joy, in wonder. And all of that is possible because the Son of God took on flesh. He came and lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for sin. He rose from the grave and He ascended into heaven and is in this passage right here still ministering to us through the power and presence of Himself that we see working in this passage. And so just as in the Gospel of Luke, this miracle is a visual act that points us to a deeper reality. Okay, so don't stop just looking at the miracle. The miracle is the event, but it points us to something more. Jesus can transform and give new life. And so can the deeds of those whom he works through. And so the gift of Christ is the gift of new life. What we're going to see is that this gift is expressed in four different ways. And in each of them, there will be an effect that it has both on the giver and on the receiver that we want to draw our attention to. And so the first way that we see this gift of new life that we have in Christ is that Christ gives riches to the poor. And we think about Christmas time, we think about riches to the poor, who who automatically comes to mind, right? Scrooge, anybody else? Are you thinking about that like, okay, what this means is that Jesus sort of takes those curmudgeons, those misers, those guys that hold on to all their money, and he makes them generous so that they're giving things out. And so if I'm rich, then then hopefully I'll be like Scrooge. And if I happen to be poor, maybe I'll be like that kid that he throws money to that goes and gets the big fat goose, or I can be like Tiny Tim who says, God bless us everyone. But that's not what's going on here, right? I mean, Obviously, this is not just focused on earthly riches, um, because Peter said right there in verse 6, I have no silver and gold. There's no prosperity gospel here. The apostle Peter's faith did not make him rich, at least not in any earthly sense. But nevertheless, he was very, very rich in Christ. Guys, there's reason why the New Testament describes Christ as riches. So we see the wealth. We see the beauty of it. They describe the riches of God's kindness, the riches of God's glory, the riches of His grace, that the riches of Christ themselves are unsearchable. Peter himself would later say in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for this purpose, so that we might have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Riches which are kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that has been ready to be revealed in the last time. And so not only do we have these riches waiting for us, being guarded by God's power, but then he goes on to say that in this you rejoice, though even now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ so Peter understood that what we had received in Jesus is far more precious, a far greater worth than any gold or silver that perishes. And that regardless of, of any situation or circumstance, any trial, any suffering, any hardship, any pain that we experience, and, and remember he's saying this to those who have been persecuted, that it only serves to show us the preciousness of Christ that it only serves to purify our salvation. It only serves to test the genuineness of our faith. And in doing that, we see Christ more clearly for the treasure that He is. And so Peter and John, in this passage, they're on their way to the temple during this ninth hour of prayer, not because they're trying to earn the riches of God's glorious grace, not because they're trying to drum up their devotion to Christ, Instead, they're going up to pray because they have already received the riches of Christ. And so they devoted themselves, like we saw last week in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the teaching, to the prayers. They're doing this not because they think that they owe God or they're trying to earn God's riches by their devotion. They devoted themselves because they have already received riches in Christ. And it changes everything. This is really key for us to consider because at Christmas time, there comes this special emphasis on giving. right? Giving towards those who are in need. To express care and concern and commitment through tangible acts of compassion. To give alms to the poor. Like we see happening right here in this passage. You can't walk into the supermarket without that piercing bell ringing in your ears from that guy with the red kettle, right? You get those year-end letters saying listen, we really need you to give so that we can keep our doors open to continue doing whatever this is that we're doing. There are commercials that sort of guilt us into giving to this or that non-for-profit, or you've got those commercials that basically say, hey, if you really want to show love, if you really want to show compassion, it's expensive gifts like cars and jewelry. Otherwise, you're a bad boyfriend. And so all of this can be forms of almsgiving. Right? Acts of compassion to physically contribute to the needs of the poor or in the case of cars and jewelry to those without who we need to show them that, they love, that we love them. But if we come with that mentality, guys, it makes giving perfunctory. It makes it required. It makes it rote. It's expected. It's demanded. Otherwise, what does that say about you? But that's not what motivates Peter or John here. Now, in Peter's day, almsgiving was a form of works-based righteousness. It was expected of any and every faithful Jew to give alms as a tangible expression of compassion, of their obedience to their law, and their devotion to God. In the apocryphal book, Tobit, it actually says, for almsgiving delivers from death and will keep you from going into the darkness, capital D. Indeed, almsgiving for all those who practice it is an excellent offering in the praise of the Most High. And so it was expected that you give alms. But Peter and John, notice here, they didn't do that. They didn't give any. Now, it could be that they didn't have anything to give, but I don't think that's the case. I think they came with something far, far more valuable than gold or silver. And when we think about this man, we see from verse 2 that he was lame from birth. He'd never been able to walk, never been able to leap, never been able to run. And furthermore, his disability would have made him an outcast. And so he, physically and probably even socially, he was unable to work. He had to be carried, and daily they laid him at the gate of the temple to ask alms of those who are entering. And so this is probably a pretty good gig for him if it's expected that if you're a faithful Jew and you're going to worship God, that you bring in your alms to give to the poor. I mean, otherwise, what does that say for your devotion? And imagine what a stark contrast this would be. You've got this poor lame beggar laid at the base of this very ornate gate that is called beautiful. More than likely, this gate would have been been covered in in gold or, or silver or bronze, a very ornate, very beautiful gate. And here at the base of it, you have a complete contrast. You've got riches, you've got wealth, you've got glory, you've got prestige, and then you've got poverty. You've got brokenness. Verse 3, we see that seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he's asking for alms. So he goes into his routine spiel there. He's hoping for money. He's hoping for anything he can get just to get by. He's not looking for Jesus. He's not expecting to be healed. He's only looking for material provision. And you can tell that he's asking without making eye contact either making sort of that drone, repetitive call, alms, alms for the poor, or perhaps he's ashamed just to look them in the eye. And even when Peter directed his gaze at him, and he said to him, look at us. You see the man lifting his eyes, he sets his attention on them, but why is he doing it? He's doing it because he thinks he's going to receive something from them. He wants money. He needs money. But what he got was not money, but a whole lot more. More than he could have ever imagined, but not anything like what he expected. His focus was on his present and physical needs, but Christ came to deliver him from his true needs. Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you this is not Peter making some excuse as if to say, you know, I, I sorry, I don't, I don't have any money on me, otherwise I'd, I'd give to you. That's, that's not what's going on here. Peter has something greater in mind, right? He, something far more greater than silver or gold, and he gave it freely, and he gave it without this man even asking. He's saying, what I do have, the riches that I have in Christ, I now give freely and fully to you. Now, friends, this has to inform the way we think about giving and the way that we think about receiving. It takes the riches of Christ, it takes those who, like Peter, were once selfish and materialistic glory seekers who are trying to take, who tried to earn their way to God through their good deeds, and it transforms them into compassionate and selfless givers. God having so lavished his grace upon us that we can now freely give. And we're not giving out of guilt. We're not giving out of this sense of duty. We're not giving out of an attempt to buy the favor of God or others, we're not doing it out of pride of place to say, like, clearly my situation is better than yours, and so you know, I need to give to you, or just pity because of this man's lowly estate. But this giving comes out of compassion. It is motivated by by love that that gives because we have already been given everything in Christ. He says, huh, I'm willing to give you all that I have. What I do have, I give to you. All that was worth so much more than silver and gold. And it didn't matter how little or how much he had. Because he didn't have gold and silver. But nevertheless, he was rich in Christ. And he gave it freely, generously, cheerfully to any, whether physically poor or to those who are poor in spirit. He's not asking that question, what must I give? He's asking the question, what have I received? That is what the riches of Christ does in us. Whether you have money or not, I don't have much, but what I do have, I give to you. And when we do that, it will transform the way we think about Christian charity. It will transform the way that we think about giving. For those who maybe find themselves poor, destitute, without, please recognize that Christ offers you so much more than physical provision. So much more than earthly treasure. He offers you an eternal inheritance. He offers you spiritual riches. He offers you a seat at the banquet table in the kingdom of God that can never, ever be taken away. And so don't let your immediate needs, though perhaps they are great and overwhelming, do not let them blind you to your true needs and the riches of Christ that He freely offers to you. This man walked away from this temple as penniless as the moment they laid him there. But he was rich in Christ. That one who was once poor in spirit is now overflowing with the wealth of Jesus. And so the gift of Christ gives riches to the poor and second, it gives healing to the broken. Now I just want to be clear here. Peter and John are not looking to heal anyone. It's not as though they were head hunting, like they went and they kind of thought to themselves, okay, we're getting ready to go to the temple, so let's pray, and let's pray for something to do. I know, let's heal somebody. Well, who are we going to heal? Let's heal, a, let's heal a man who was born lame, and, and uh, I know, we'll look for him outside of that beautiful gate, you know, that one that's really ornate, because what a contrast that would make. We'd be able to point him out really clearly, and so that, that's what they went to look for. And they didn't go to the temple because that would be a, a major event center so that they could kind of perform a mass healing by the power of the Holy Spirit. They healed one man. That's not at all, though, why they went to the temple. They went to the temple to pray. They went because they knew that they were men who were once broken, but whose souls had been healed by Christ. Just keep in mind that Peter and John, they had abandoned Jesus at his arrest. They didn't share in his sufferings and his crucifixion. Peter had denied Jesus three times. And it wasn't until Jesus rose from the grave that he was restored, reconciled, healed. The focus of this passage is not on the miracle of the healing. That's just what happened. That's just the event but just like with Pentecost that we saw last time in chapter two, or any anytime Jesus healed anyone in Luke's gospel, it sets the stage for the explanation for who Jesus is, for why He came and for what it means to follow him. And that's what's happening right here in this text. So you have the event of verses one through 10, this healing, and it's followed by this lengthy explanation in verses 11 through 26, too much that for me to handle today, so I broke it up into two sections. So it doesn't stop with the miracle. In fact, what we see happening is that whenever miracles are mentioned in Scripture, this this wonderful thing occurs, but immediately they begin to take their eyes off of that to, to put it on Jesus. They turn away from the miracle, or in the case of the apostles, away from the miracle workers, and they place it squarely upon Jesus, upon who He is. They focus on the deeper reality, the glory of Christ. And so we shouldn't think to read this and think to ourselves, well, those who have received the power of the Holy Spirit should be able to heal people. That's not the point. Because if you read carefully through the book of Acts, who do you find healing people? These signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. Not everybody who received the Holy Spirit. And the apostles themselves always direct our attention away from themselves and away from the miracles and put it squarely on Jesus. And we see it happening right there in verse six. Peter says, look, I I have no silver and gold. I have nothing. I am nothing. But what I do have, I give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, not in my name, but in Christ's name, rise up and walk. You see, it was the power, the authority, the presence of Christ that healed this man's disability. Not Peter or his followers. And in verses 11 through 26, Peter addresses the crowd with the second recorded sermon that focuses not even on Jesus' power to heal, but actually on how Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises. He directs us away from the sensational to what is scriptural. Just like he did last time in chapter 2. Something to kind of keep in mind and let that inform our hearts and minds as we think about what we are to focus on, what we are to center ourselves on. What we see is that again and again and again, Scripture moves away from what is sensational to place it squarely on what is scriptural. And I want to be absolutely clear here. It wasn't Peter's faith that healed this man because verse 12 says, says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? He said, look, we, we didn't do this. We, we weren't planning to do this. We, we didn't come here looking to do this. Christ did this so that we can tell you who he truly is. And neither was it the result of this man's faith. He wasn't there looking for Christ's apostles to come and heal him. He was, wasn't begging in the name of Jesus to be healed. He was simply there asking for alms so that he could survive his current situation, his current condition. That's all that he wanted to do, is just receive some alms. And this man was born lame, right? Never been able to walk. He, no strength in his feet or his ankles, all right, this wasn't some psychosomatic pain. This wasn't the result of stress or anxiety or emotional turmoil that, that messed with this guy's GI tract or gave him back pain. This was something far, far greater. He was never able to walk. A man lame from birth had to be carried everywhere. Everywhere. He'd never been able to jump, never been able to move on his own freely. But when Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And this is Dr. Luke using technical jargon in the Greek to give him a clear bill of health. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. Never in his wildest dreams did he imagine that on this day, the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ would heal his brokenness, that he would make his feet and his ankles of this man who was lame from birth strong, perfectly able to walk, to leap, to run. But friends, we need to understand that the point of the miracles that we see in Scripture is not simply That Jesus makes our physical lives better. That Jesus will heal us of all of our physical infirmities in this life if we just have enough faith. Or that that, these miracles are a foreshadowing of the day to come when Christ will restore, when He will renew, when He will perfect all that has gone wrong in the world. This is an indication of that fact. The healing of this man born lame is a foreshadowing of what we're going to look like look at next week in verses 19 through 21, where it says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, get this, until the time for restoring All the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. A time of restoring all things. What we see happening here with this man is just a glimpse that God's promises hold true. That He will truly, perfectly restore all things. That He will make all things new. And you know what's more amazing than the fact that this man was given the ability to walk is the fact that this miracle serves as evidence that this man has been given new life. That Christ has healed his true brokenness. The times of refreshing have now come to him from the very presence of the Lord. And here's the effect that this healing We've received in Christ that those who have truly repented of their sin, it says that their sins have been blotted out. And times of refreshing have now come upon us until the time for restoring all things is at hand. And because he has now healed us of our brokenness, we can now enter into the brokenness of others to offer compassion, to offer refreshment, to offer restoration to God. And Christmas is an important time to consider this because in, with Christmas, we always come face-to-face with brokenness. You're gonna travel home. You're gonna meet with your family. You'll face brokenness. You gather together with your friends. Some bad thing inevitably happens in their life. You're confronted with brokenness. You go to the store on such and such a day to buy that last-minute gift. You pass by someone who is broken. It's an opportunity for us not to pass by. We have received healing so that we can minister to the broken. Just like Peter and John, friends, let's direct our gaze straight at it and say, listen, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. May God use that to help heal brokenness that you come into contact with this season. Friends, if you happen to be here and you find yourself feeling broken, and this season itself seems to make the pain all the more unbearable, entrust your soul to Christ. Receive strength and healing that goes beyond what is physical. Just like with this man who wasn't looking for healing, Christ is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think of, even if he never takes the infirmity away. And we know that he will because he has already done all that is necessary through his death and resurrection to restore, to heal of our true brokenness so that we might live with him forever in perfect glory. And so the gift of Christ, it gives riches to the poor, gives healing to the broken, and third, joy to the sorrowful. Friends, it was joy that led Peter and John to this man. Christ had carried their sorrows, according to Isaiah 53, on his shoulders upon the cross. His resurrection from the dead is what caused them to be born again to a living hope, rejoicing their hearts. Their joy, in their joy, they were going to the temple during that ninth hour for prayer and worship. Right? Just as as Caleb had pointed out a little while ago, he stole my thunder a bit, right? The beginning and the fuel for this encounter that led to the gospel presentation, that led to evangelism, that led to missions, was worship. It was joy that led them to gaze upon this man, or as John Piper in Let the Nations Be Glad says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exist because worship does not And he goes on to say, but worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offering of God in preaching. In other words, you cannot commend what you do not cherish. Where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. Churches that are not centered on the exaltation of the majesty and beauty of God will scarcely kindle a fervent desire to declare His glory among the nations. And what we see happening here with Peter and John is that worship fuels, worship motivates, worship directs us to evangelize. The more that we grow in our knowledge of and our love for God, the more excited we will be to share Him with other people. And last week, we saw that very thing as the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, that, that evangelism was the natural byproduct of teaching, of fellowship, of breaking of bread and prayers. And here it is again, right there in verse, or chapter 3. If we, Redeemer Church, are to be an evangelistic church, we have to first be a truly worshiping church. Our joy in Christ overflowing to those in sorrow. And speaking of sorrow, I mean have you ever tried to put yourself in this man's shoes, in this man's position? I mean, I can only imagine what it would be like to be him. And this man is an outcast. He's a cripple. Needed to be carried everywhere he went. Being laid at the gate of the temple to beg for alms. Like that's your value. That's all you can do. That's all you're good for just ask people for money, being right there at the gate of the temple, but never able to enter into the temple. I wonder if where he was sitting there at the base of that gate, he could hear the songs being sung. I wonder if he could hear the prayers of those people passed by going on to worship. I wonder if he could hear the teaching that was taking place within those walls. I wonder how much he longed just for communion with God and with God's people, but not to be seen, but I guess to be seen as an equal and not as an invalid. Just longing for that, feeling so unworthy, unaccepted, unwanted, filled with sorrow, that you can't even look people in the eye as they pass you by. But when Peter took him by the hand and raised him up in verse 7, it says his feet and his ankles were made strong and leaping, he stood up and began to walk. And for the very first time, what did he do? He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The results... The effect, the purpose, the goal of this encounter was worship. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat sorrowful at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. His sorrow was turned to joy. His sadness to a glad, worship-filled heart. This man born lame was now leaping for joy, not simply because he could now walk, but because he has seen the glory of the Lord who had given him a new life. He was now free. He was now a new man. And he rejoiced. And friends, those words, lame and leap, are really, really significant in Scripture. They happen only a few times. Acts chapter 14 When Paul heals a man who was born as a cripple, we see it with Jesus healing the paralytic. It should be a familiar story to many of us. And the very first time we see it in Scripture is in Isaiah 35, when God promises His people that the wilderness and dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, Then, then the eyes of the blind shall, shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away, friends. What a great and precious promise here, and we see it being fulfilled right before our eyes in Acts chapter three. Jesus caused this lame man to leap for joy, and the effect of for both the giver and the receiver is the same. It is worship. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away when gladness and everlasting joy of Christ is upon our heads and in our hearts. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and shall come to Zion singing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. We speak of the joy of Christ to those in sorrow for His glory for their good, and for our joy in Him. And as we do so, it brings us more joy. And when those who are sorrowful, seeing the glory of the Lord, they recognize, they affirm, and are strengthened. They are made firm. They fear not. And though our pain and our infirmities may never pass away in this life, we know that we are the ransomed of the Lord and it causes our hearts to sing. Friends, that is the joy of the newborn king. And so the gift of Christ brings riches to the poor, healing to the broken, joy to the sorrowful, and fourth, wonder to the indifferent. Verses 9 through 12, we see that the crowd was filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. They're utterly astounded. They ran to Solomon's portico just to be near uh, Peter and John. They're staring at them like they are gods. But the question is, would this momentary wonder be transformed into true and lasting wonder? Let's keep in mind that Peter and John had followed Jesus for three years. They'd heard Jesus teach countless times. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. I mean, Jesus had calmed storms. Jesus had had caused the sick to be healed. He forgave sins. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. Peter and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They actually saw the radiance of His glory. And what did they do? They still fought over who is the greatest. They still abandoned him. Peter still denied him. Everyone doubted and questioned and despaired at his death. And it wasn't until Christ's resurrection and his ascension that their amazement that they had experienced over and over again for three years truly turned to wonder. They began to marvel at who he is and what he has done. But even then, they had to still remind one another, encourage one another, rekindle one another through teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. It was the true wonder that led them that hour to the temple to pray. But the crowd, on the other hand, is almost non-existent through the first eight verses. Busy doing whatever they're doing. It's almost as if no one is there in the picture except for Peter, John, and this man who was lame from birth until this man stood up. And then suddenly there in verse 9, it says, All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico that called Solomon's astounded. So they went from immediately being indifferent to amazed, right? They they went from sort of being callous towards this man, maybe walking by and throwing some change in his can to suddenly wondering, recognizing him for the first time who this man truly was. They went from being just apathetic and completely indifferent towards the apostles to now suddenly ready to worship them. All of this happened suddenly, They went and became as a mob running to the portico in amazement from being totally distracted to utterly astounded. They looked up from their shopping lists. They looked up from their travel plans, from their meal preparation, from their work schedules, from getting their homes all in order and just so to behold the work of Christ. And they ran to see what had just happened. But friends, would they they stop at being entertained by the flash in the pan? Would they attribute it to man? I mean, that's what they were beginning to do, staring at them almost as if they were gods. You see, they needed to be shaken awake from their indifference, from their apathy, from their distraction, but not to shock and awe. They needed to behold Christ to wonder and marvel at his glory. And so Peter addressed them in verse 12, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And then beginning there in verse 13, he gives them a real reason to wonder. He says, listen, Jesus is the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah. Jesus is the Jesus is the Holy and Righteous One. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is the foretold Christ. Jesus is the anointed king. Jesus is the prophet that Moses had promised. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And you killed him, but he rose from the dead. And here we see that all was coming upon every soul, just like in chapter 2, verse 43. That Christ was granting Peter and John favor with all the people through this healing, just like in chapter 2, verse 47. But the question still remained, would they respond in faith? Would they believe? Would they receive God's Word? Would they receive the Holy Spirit? Would they be saved to truly begin to wonder at the glory of Christ Or would this wonderful event that they are now celebrating ever lead to true wonder in Jesus? Quite honestly, that's a question for all of us this season. We get a wonder at some lights on a tree, some gifts under that tree, some time well spent with loved ones, or will we wonder at Christ? We've all now witnessed this event. But will will it lead us to marvel at Jesus? True wonder comes from clarifying. The crowd didn't know what this meant until Peter explained that this is the work of Christ. True wonder comes when when we repent of our indifference, when we repent of our apathy or our distraction towards Him. The blessing comes when we devote ourselves to Him, when we turn from our wickedness to follow Christ. And we see in chapter 4, verse 4, that many of those who received, who heard His word, believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. But will we truly hear? Will we truly receive and wonder at these words? Friends, that requires that we understand that Jesus, not the miraculous healing or even the people who came in his name, but Jesus alone is our true hope. And just like Peter and John, little by little, our indifference gives way to wonder. Friends, that won't happen if we busy ourselves with all sorts of distractions. It won't happen if we focus on the wrong things. It won't happen... If we simply look at the event with all of the sights and with all of the sounds, with all of the little Christmas wonders, we've got to tear off all of the wrapping in order to see what the true gift really is. A gift that gives riches to the poor, that gives healing to the broken, that gives joy to the sorrowful, and wonder to the indifferent. You see, the gift of Christ is the gift of new life. Let's make sure that we set our hearts on that this Christmas season. Let every heart repair him room. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this reminder. Oh God, help us to see the true wonder behind it. We're so prone to just stay focused on the, on the physical, on the present, on those things that seem most immediately gratifying, and we miss the wealth of, of what is here, the riches that we have in Christ, the healing that we have received in His name that binds up our broken hearts. Lord, so often we, we trade the joy of Christ for joy or happiness or gladness temporarily in trinkets and things in time spent. And we're indifferent to who Christ is. God, I pray that, that out of the overflow of what we receive, that we would truly give that when we think about giving to others in this season, it would be motivated by the riches of Christ. That we, when we encounter those who are broken, that we would remember what healing we have received. That when sadness begins to come upon us or others, that we would find our joy in Him and what He has accomplished. And that we would cast off and fight hard against indifference Intentionally begin to wonder and marvel at the gift of Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.